you have a Bible, would you please now open it to the book of Hosea? And today we will be looking at chapter 3. James Montgomery Boyce, who was a pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in downtown Philadelphia for many years, once published a series of sermons on the book of Hosea. And in that book, if you go to the sermon on Hosea chapter 3, the title of the sermon is The Greatest Chapter in the Bible. Now, some may want to dispute that. Some may want to say, well, there are other chapters that I think are really, really important. But maybe when you're done this morning, or when we're done, you might not think it's the greatest chapter, but you'll see why some people think so. Now, this morning we're going to read the entirety of chapter 3. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read from Hosea. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods afterward the children of israel shall return and seek the lord their god and david their king and they shall come in fear to the lord and to his goodness in the latter days this is god's word let us pray father we would ask you today to be the teacher to be the preacher we ask that by your spirit, you would empower the one who preaches and enable the one who listens. It is so easy for us to drift away during this time to think about a thousand other things that are pressing for our attention. Uh, some of the stresses of life, some of the sorrows, some of the heartaches, some of the hopes and dreams. But we pray today that we would give attention to the preaching of the word. And we know that as we do that, you will speak to us and draw us near to you and lead us to repentance and faith and hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle John wrote this, We love him because he first loved us. The Apostle Paul says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Amazingly, the love of God embraces not only those who are near and dear, but also those who openly oppose him. We might die for our families because we love them, and a soldier might die for his country because he loves it, but who dies for a sworn enemy? In the book, The Magnificent Defeat, Frederick Beekner writes the following. The love for equals is a human thing. 
a friend for friend, a brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely, and the world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, for the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a very rare thing. <laughs> to love those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice, the love of the poor for the rich, the love of people of different races for other races, the world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there's the love for the enemy, love for the one who does not love you, but rather mocks you, threatens you, betrays you, inflicts pain upon you. The tortured love for the torturer. This is God's love, and it conquers the world. Today, we're going to try to fathom the unfathomable love of God, what Paul also referred to as the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. And to understand the love of God, God wanted to communicate to his people who were in covenant with him a very important truth. God says, I don't only want to be your master. I don't only want to be your king. I don't only want to be the one who delivers and saves you and rescues and redeems you, but I want to be your husband. I want to love you, and I want you to know how much I love you, and I want you to understand the depth of that love. And so we do a deja vu all over again, according to the great theologian Yogi Berra. Now, God instructs his prophet. Here's what he's really telling Hosea. There's no way that you, who, is, who I have called to be my prophet, the one I have called to communicate to real living people my message of love for the broken and for the rebellious. There's no way you can do that. You are not yet qualified to do that. You can't do it with the pathos and the energy and the heart knowledge unless you go do something that I'm about to tell you to do. And until you go marry this particular kind of woman, and go through what you're going to go through with her, there's no way you can communicate to the people how my heart is toward my bride, Israel. And so Hosea, again, becomes a living parable. God calls him again to go, not take a woman, but love a woman. And it is a powerful image and picture. The metaphor is just as Hosea goes and loves this woman who nobody would ever want, who nobody would ever want to be involved with in any way. It's just icky, yucky to think about it. And so God is calling his prophet to do that in order to be a metaphor for God's heart toward his people. And it is a poignant, powerful thing. And I think the reason why God does stuff like this is, he, is because he knows something about us. 
and that the only thing that will melt our hard hearts, the only thing that will pump life into our cold, dead hearts is his love and understanding it and being grasped by it and feeling it and seeing it. So he gives us this, this picture that is beyond words. And so what we're going to do today is try to look at some of the facets of his love, how much that love cost him, how that love shows itself in the life of the nation Israel and also in the life of any of his people, and then how his love can restore one who has walked away. And so, the Bible, book of Hosea, is telling us that our relationship with God is a lot like a marriage. But in this passage, uh, the theme tells us that God wants a relationship with us that is so intensely personal and intimate and at the same time binding and enduring that he, he wants us to understand what he is toward us. He's saying in so many words, you cannot understand me or my love for you or our relationship unless you understand me as your bridegroom. It's not enough that you understand me as your king, as your shepherd, as your father. You don't really know what our relationship is about until you see me as your husband. And so one of the things that we understand from this is the principle of priority. God is saying to his people, as your husband, I must be first. I must be number one. I must be number two. I must be number three. I must be first. Nothing can come before me. Nothing can come before me. And you understand that as you look carefully at this passage. And so, what we see him telling his servant to do is he says to Hosea, you're a prophet. It is your calling. It is your job to understand me and know who I am so you can communicate it to other people and bring the knowledge of God into their lives and change them. This is how you're going to become a prophet because you do not understand me and you do not understand what I am going through to love this people. God is saying this is how you're going to become a great prophet and a great preacher and a great communicator who's going to be able to touch people. You have to go through what I'm going through. And So in chapter 1, he told uh, Hosea to marry a woman of ill repute and bear children with her, and she became unfaithful to him, and she became a prostitute. But now he tells him again to go marry a woman. Now the question arises in your mind, and maybe someone else's, is this Gomer? Is he going back again, chasing after Gomer, who had left him, had sold herself into some kind of slavery, maybe was even a temple prostitute, we don't know, and God's telling uh, Hosea to go and do that. I don't really know. I don't really know whether this is another woman or this is Gomer. The text does not say it's Gomer, and it's not necessary for it to be Gomer, his first wife, that according to chapter 2, it appears that he put her away in divorce. So he's marrying here another woman, 
who is presently living with a, her lover and who is engaged up to her neck in prostitution. And so it's, it's, it is a powerful, powerful image. And God is basically saying one of the great themes of the Old Testament is you do not understand the impact of wrongdoing on your God until you understand this image. When a king sees a citizen breaking a rule, it makes him angry. When a shepherd sees a sheep straying, shepherds say, ah, you know sheep. When a father sees a child disobeying him, it breaks his heart and makes it angry. But when the person you love most is in your life is putting him or herself in the arms of another, that's different. God says until you understand that, and I know that perhaps some of you have been through this very thing. I know for sure some of you have. Virtually all of you know somebody pretty well who's been through that. There's almost nothing like it, and God is saying in this text, until you've been through that, or you know somebody who's been through that, you do not understand the impact of your wrongdoing and your coldness and your waywardness and your betrayal upon me. I, I don't know if I can even use this word to talk about the heart of God, but there is some vulnerability here. To love this way exposes one. Now, I do understand that God in his nature does not need us. God in his nature is not touched by what we do or don't do. But God, in the economy of redemption, has so aligned himself to us that he wants us. He wants an intimate relationship with us. It somehow fills his joy to be connected to us. That's one of the great mysteries of the Bible, why that would be true, considering who God is. But that's what he's telling the prophet here. I want you to know the pain of your unfaithfulness and infidelity toward me as a people. I want you to know it. There's a sense in which we will never fully grasp our sin. We will never fully grasp grace until we stand in the shoes of Hosea and his living parable regarding God. And so let's kind of begin to look a little bit closer at this. Um, Hosea is here commanded to find a wife who has the status and quality of being loved by another. A euphemism made explicit in the remark that if she would be an adulteress. While whoredom in chapter 1 is broader, both characterizations point to a woman who belongs to the category of sexually stained and who thus has a particular social status. Here she is a woman found guilty of infidelity and divorced for it. The status of Israel in chapter 2, her unfaithful sexual alliances have taken her off the list of honorable wives. She is socially tainted goods. And she's spoken of in the most pejorative way. Yet Hosea must love this woman, must devote himself to this woman, just as 
Yahweh, loves Israel in their idolatry. Because what is idolatry but spiritual adultery? Love, his love is expressed in defiance of his people's betrayal. He binds himself to them in their disgrace. Once more, Hosea must embody Yahweh's status as one who has deliberately embraced his shameful partner. And where chapter 1, verse 2 exposed the shame brought upon Yahweh by his people, here we find Yahweh's grace in devoting himself to Israel in spite of her shame. Hosea grounds Yahweh's grace not in the object of receiving it, but in Yahweh's own love. One of the characteristics we note about God's love for his people is that he always takes the initiative. We love him, why? Because he what? First loved us. He wooed us. He came after us. God always takes the initiative in communicating his love. And so one of the facets of his love is to see that willingness to do so. But he takes his wife and he pays a bride's price for her. And this is amazing. His obedience once more to, uh, to take his wife at a cost of 15 shekels, silver, and a homer, and a lethek of barley. Now, that's foreign to most of us. I mean, we can get the shekels. We know what a shekel is or have heard of it, but the rest we don't. But the total more likely represents the bridal price paid for the second marriage. And the low price, barley was extremely cheap, emphasizing her broken status. That Hosea received her again indicates a legal transfer more akin to adoption than purchasing a product. It is legally established the adulteress as Hosea's wife. She, with her shame, has legally and formally come into his household. That's powerful. And so, his second call to marry uh, someone who is disgraceful. And, and the general pattern is a microcosm of the whole book and a way of understanding the severe judgment we see painted in Hosea. And so, we see two other, I think, in this passage crucial realities. The first is the prophet's refusal to confuse restoration with any form of antinomianism. We see both in Hosea's demand of the people's fidelity in chapter 3 verse 3 and his envisioning of the people's return in fear to Yahweh. We can never understand undeserved grace and confuse it with cheap grace. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance. It is baptism without the discipline of community. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without the living incarnate Jesus Christ. 
Costly grace is Christ's sovereignty for the sake of which you tear out an eye if it causes you to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ which causes a disciple to leave his nets and follow him. It is costly because it costs people their lives. It is grace because it thereby makes them alive. It is costly because it condemns sin. It is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, grace is costly because it was costly to God, because it cost God the life of his Son, and because nothing can be cheap to us which is costly to God. Grace does not displace law in Hosea, but it provides its context and motivation. When he marries her, he takes her home with him. I want you to look down. By the way, this whole idea of her being an adulteress and turning to other gods and love uh, cakes of raisins. One of my favorite cookies is an oatmeal raisin cookie. When I read that, I went, oh, no, I guess i got to give them up. No. What are cakes of raisins? They were actually involved in Baal worship. They were an aphrodisiac. And so what God is saying is my people in syncretizing or blending Yahwehism and the worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal have loved these raisin cakes and their participation in the temple prostitution more than they love me. Their indulgence more than they love me. And so you can almost see the heart of God here breaking, again as a metaphor, breaking. It's powerful. And then look what he says in verse 3. He says to her, you must dwell as mine. Now, he bought her. I'm not sure whether that was a bridal price. It could have been, or it could have been he bought her off the slave market. More than likely, if he bought her as a slave and redeemed her as a slave, she was in some kind of bondage, and I don't know whether that was why she was in prostitution or what. But he pays a very low price for her. More than likely, she was on the slave market auction block, and she was totally unclothed, naked standing there in all of her shame, probably past her prime. And so he buys her. We don't know that he did this, but more than likely, he probably took a cloak and covered her nakedness. He took a veil and put it over her head, and he took her home with him, and he told her, you can't live like this anymore. You can't go your own way anymore. You're going to be chased, and not even I, as your husband, will have relations with you. Because God's love is a chastening love. He draws all kinds of limitations around the relationship with her. It is not inconsistent with God to bring chastening down upon his people. That is an act of love. The book of Hebrews says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens every child he receives. And I remember years ago preaching a sermon on that, not too long ago preaching a sermon on that. The word for chastened there means skins alive. He skins alive his children. Why? Because his love is a jealous love. 
And most of the time we like to talk about the love of God, you know, and it's just wonderful and it's lilting and we're lifted up and we're praising God and raising our hands, but we don't so much like this chastening love. And so Hosea does this with, with his wife and then God proceeds to do that with Israel. And how does he do that with Israel? Through captivity and exile. He takes away all of their institutions. He takes away everything they ever had that represents them to God. And he has them sent, at least in Babylon, to a strange land. And here they end up escaping the northern kingdom, some going to the southern kingdom. But it was utter destruction of everything they had ever had that would appear to be any sense of blessing. And most of these things he lists in verse 4 are things that were some of them, the ephod was perfectly designed by God. It was like a vest, and in the vest were the pocket of the stones called the urim and the thummim, thummim. And the urim and the thummim were stones, kind of like dice, that you rolled to get answers yes or no from God. And apparently the priest had been using them for far more matters than that. They had so blended in the, the uh, worship of Yahweh with Baal that God removed everything from them. He stripped them. He sent them in their disgrace and shame into exile. But his sending them into exile was not utter judgment to forget about them, but rather to prepare their hearts for returning to him. There may be people listening to me right now, and your life is in exile. Your life is in exile. Rather than your life being characterized by the presence of God, it's characterized more by the absence of God. Your life may be right now that you feel so distant and away from Him, and you feel like He's abandoned you, and you feel like, where did He go? And you know you've sinned against Him, and you know you've rebelled against Him, and you know, like the prodigal son, you've left home. But then there becomes that moment when you understand that God's sending you into exile as God says to His people, I know the plans that I have for you to prosper you, to give you an expected end. He said that, Jeremiah, to the exilees in Babylon. But God is here showing that these people who have broken his covenant, not only broken it, but spit on it and rebelled against him in the most contemptible ways, that the curses <coughs> of that covenant would fall. But when Hosea goes and buys his wife off the slave market, we see an emphasis here of Yahweh embracing his people in their shamefulness. He knows their shame. It's not hidden or mitigated in any way. Yet he seeks them out in full knowledge of that shame. He overturns the disgraceful names of the children with honorable ones. He takes to himself a disgraced wife and so gives her glory. As Richard Baxter put it, God will give us leave to love him that he will vouchsafe to be embraced by such arms that have embraced lust and sin before him. By taking the unfaithful wife's shame to himself, remember the hymn, Bearing Shame and Scoffing Rude? 
Yahweh shares glory with his people. The emphasis in the Gospels and epistles on the shamefulness of Christ's suffering on the cross is not a newly revealed aspect of God's character. It is the highest embodiment of what we learn of God himself in Hosea. God seeks out his disgraced people. He seeks them out. And he takes them upon himself. And he gives them a share in his honor. I'm not going to read the opening uh, quote in the bulletin from Francis Thompson uh, based upon the hound of heaven but that is God's heart toward his people God's love can be both punitive and restorative and this is the essence of the chapter's message when punishment is deserved it will be given Love demands this, not the indulgent love of the adulterous prostitute Israel for cultic raisin cakes, but the firm, gracious love of God for his wayward people. Since the people of Israel could not find any good apart from Yahweh, he must of necessity teach them that truth. So what does his love cost him? What is the costliness of his love probably someone that helped me understand the nature of that and uh, I've already talked about chastening I've already talked about the facets of his love but I want to talk a little bit about the costliness of his love God's love is always an exercise of his goodness but God's love is an exercise of his goodness towards sinners as such it has the nature of grace and mercy it is an outgoing of God in kindness which is not merely undeserved but is actually contrary to desert. For the objects of God's love are rational creatures who have broken his law, whose nature is corrupt in God's sight, who merit only condemnation and ultimate banishment from his presence. It is staggering that God should ever love sinners. It is staggering. Yet it is true. God loves creatures who have become unlovely and, one would have thought, unlovable. There's nothing, whatever, in the objects of his love to ever call it forth. Nothing in man could attract or prompt it. Love among men is awakened by something in the beloved, but the love of God is free, spontaneous, unevoked, uncaused. God's love, he loves men because he's chosen to love them. And he's set his will upon that. And his love can be given except through his own sovereign and good pleasure. The Greek and Roman world of the New Testament times had never dreamed of such love. Its gods were often credited with lusting after women, but never loving sinners. And the New Testament writers had to introduce what was virtually a new Greek word, agape, to introduce and express the love of God as they knew it. God's love is an exercise of his goodness toward individual center, sinners. It is not a vague, diffused goodwill towards everybody in general and nobody in particular. Rather, it is his purpose of love formed before creation, involved first in the choice and selection of those whom he would bless. 
And second, the appointment of the benefits to be given to them. God's love to sinners is His identifying Himself with their welfare. Such an identification is involved in any kind of love. It is indeed the test of whether love is genuine or real or not. If a father continues cheerful and carefree while his son is getting to, into trouble, or if a husband remains unmoved when his wife is in distress, we wonder how much love can there be in that relationship. For we know that those who truly love are only happy when those whom they love are happy also. So it is with God and his love for his people. It is not for nothing that the Bible has habitually speaks of God as loving father and husband of his people. God was happy without man before man was made. He would have continued to be happy had he simply destroyed man after his first sin. But as, as it is, he has set his love upon a particular sinner's. And this means that his own free, voluntary choice. He will not know perfect and unmixed happiness again till he has brought every one of them beautifully, beautified, clean and pure to heaven to give to his son. That is why I've when I often re, uh, quote from Jude, verse 24, uh, to explain God's own joy in the presence of the angels when a sinner repents and why there will be exceeding joy when God sees us faultless in the day of his holy presence. God's love to sinners is expressed by the gift of his Son to be their Savior. The measure of love is how much it gives. And the measure of God's love is the gift of his only son to be made man, to die for sins, and to become the one mediator who can bring us to God. No wonder Paul speaks of the great love of God, Christ passing knowledge. Paul argues that this supreme gift is itself the guarantee of every other gift we were get. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinfully rebelling against him, Christ died for us and that he finds proof that the Son of God loved us and the fact that he gave himself for us. Hosea's action of taking his bride and covering her is amazing. God's grace carries us in all of our lives, even when, and especially when we are completely unable to move forward on our own. In fact, it is in our weakness that God's grace is brought to its fullest power. In our state of disgrace, He constantly gives us grace. Disgrace is the opposite of grace. Grace is love that seeks you out even if you have nothing to give in return. Grace is being loved when you feel unlovable. Grace has the power to turn despair into hope. Grace listens. It lifts up. It cures. It transforms. It heals. Disgrace destroys. It causes pain. 
It deforms. It wounds. It alienates. It isolates. Disgrace makes you feel worthless, rejected, unwanted, repulsive, like a persona, non grata. Disgrace silences and shuns. To your sense of disgrace, God restores, heals, and recreates through grace. A good short definition of grace is one-way love. The contrast between disgrace and grace is staggering. One-way love does not avoid you, but it comes near, not because of personal merit, but because of your need. It is the lasting transformation that takes place in human experience. One-way love is the change agent you need for the disgrace that we all experience. Can you receive grace and be rid of your disgrace? The gospel of Jesus answers yes, because grace is embodied in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the redemptive work of God in our own history, in our own human flesh. Grace is identical with Jesus Christ. While God's grace is lavished abundantly to the ungrateful and the wicked, his compassion reaches out especially to those in desperate need. It was Martin Luther who described this good news. God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores health to none but those who are sick, gives sight to none but the blind, and life to none but the dead. He has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. God's free grace invites our responses of faith, gratitude, worship, and obedience. The writer Anne Lamont said the following, I do not understand all the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but does not leave us where he found us. And so the powerful word of God here through Hosea concludes with something that I think is worthy of a finishing thought. Look with me. He talks in verse 4 about the children of Israel. This is a description of exile. But notice verse 5. There's a word of hope here. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in latter days. So in other words, even though his people were exiled, even though they lost everything that represented to them God, His goodness, and His grace. The promises is, are that the people will return. Now, how people interpret that are interesting. And I will just mention what I think is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise to God's people. Who is in His line, and according to Romans chapter 1, the son of David. It is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who ultimately fulfills the hope of a Davidide, a king. Through his resurrection, he is declared to be with power, the son of man, the son of David. And ultimately, the coming of the people and returning and seeking the Lord has now expanded from national ethnic to international, uh, a tribe no man can number, a people of every tribe, kindred, nation, 
and everything ultimately will find its fulfillment of those coming to the great David-eyed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, depending on your eschatological view, uh, the latter part of Romans chapter 9 and the latter part of Romans chapter 11 seem to be saying that there will be a time toward the end that there will be a large turning of ethnic Israel to Jesus Christ. I don't know that much about that with certainty, but I have a great hope for it. Paul wished himself accursed of God for the salvation of his people, the Jews. And it is with great hope that we can all anticipate that God may yet fulfill that. That's why I call myself an optimistic millennialist. That's my optimism. But the wonderful thing I don't want you to lose in this passage is God has opened up, as it were, his heart today and says, the love demonstrated on the cross is a classic, wonderful example of my love. But my love for my people has been going on ever since there has been my people. The love in God in Christ, which is past understanding. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this chapter and the powerful picture that we have seen today. The word love is used four times in verse 1. And as, as we begin to understand the love of God, it begins to melt us. It begins to draw us. It begins to call us home. So we pray today that you would call people back to yourself call people home those who have turned and gone their way who other things rather than you have had dominion over them lord i pray it would cause all of us to repent to get rid of the idols that so crop up in our hearts all the time and that we would recognize that you are our ultimate priority that you're not merely a master, you're not merely a king, you're not merely a shepherd. You're, you're, you're our bridegroom, Lord Jesus, and we are your bride. Now, Lord, as we continue to worship, may we give as those who have prospered listening to your word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.